Welcome to Engage Boise. We hope that you enjoy this live recording of our Sunday service. Today, I'm excited to finish up the book of Genesis. We're going to be covering all of Genesis 49 and 50 this morning. So if you want to turn there and be ready, we're just going to read all like 100 verses right now. It's not, we're not going to. <laughs> Two weeks ago, that's an estimation. I don't know how many there are. It would be a lot. We're not going to read them all word for word today. Uh, two weeks ago, before we took a detour last Sunday, we spent the morning talking about the end of the dream, the end of Joseph's dream. Talks about how when you have a dream when you're sleeping, you pretty much never get to see the end, right? You never see yourself hit the ground. You never see the monster catch you. You never see the end. But Joseph, he had a dream when he was 17 years old, and he unwisely related this dream to his brother. He should not have done that, I don't think, uh, but he did. And so began this journey that Joseph, uh, nor anyone in his family, thought that he ever would have taken, that he ever would have imagined. But Joseph's dream, it did come true, right? If you've been following along, Joseph's dream came true. He'd had this dream that his family, his brothers, were going to bow to him. And his brothers did bow to him. He was the only one who could save them from a worldwide famine. His family was together, but it was in Egypt and not in Canaan where they would have chosen. The amazing thing about it happening in Egypt is that uh, uh, Joseph's people and the Egyptians, they were not fond of each other. This was the last place in the world you would have expected them to end up. This would be like if back in the 80s, I remember the 80s, I'm 43, so I was a kid in the 80s. Uh, we lived on Fairchild Air Force Base, so there was nuclear-armed bombers sitting on the runway all the time, and they flew over our house, and I thought it was amazing because uh, I like planes. The air show last week, that whole weekend was just an experience. I didn't even have to go. They just flew over my house all weekend. It was awesome. But it would have been like living uh, in the 80s and God moving your whole family to the USSR in the middle of the Cold War, but it was the best place for you to be. Everyone was kind to you. You had the best in the world in the USSR. That's what it would have been like. That's what happened to these guys. They moved to the farthest, weirdest place they thought they would ever be, and God took care of them. Because Egypt was the place where you might know this because we've been talking about it. God would use Egypt to turn them into a great nation. They'd go from a wandering tribe of 70 or so to a nation 2 million or so strong while they were in Egypt. But it was time, we talked about two weeks ago, for Jacob to be, die and be buried. And he did not want to be buried in Egypt. Because Canaan was where God had promised that his family would eventually be. What we noted and we unpacked uh, last week or two weeks ago is that the place of safety, where we find safety, is not always where we're supposed to stay. That Egypt, uh, for Jacob and his family, for Joseph and his family, it was a temporary place of shelter from the famine the rest of the world was going through. And it was similar to Noah and the ark. Joseph's faithfulness in Egypt over the course of his entire life is what brought lasting blessing upon his family. It's an incredible story. And that leads us to these final two chapters where we see the story summed up with what we're talking about today. Three things, honor, guilt, and honesty. Like I said, we're not going to read all of the two chapters word for word. That would be a lot. We'll read bits and pieces of it. But here in these two chapters, we see decades of history wrapped up. Chapter 49, it contains the death of Jacob, the patriarch of the family. And chapter 50 contains the death of Joseph. However, contained within those chapters are those three things that we'll talk about, honor and guilt and honesty. 
You might recall when we left off in Genesis 48 a couple weeks ago, Jacob had just finished pronouncing a double blessing upon Joseph by adopting Joseph's two sons, but not saying Ephraim, into his family. That meant that Joseph would have double the inheritance from his father. His brothers would have one share, and he'd have two, uh, he'd have two pieces of land. They'd only have one. And it's only a precursor to what's to come as we get ready to read uh, Genesis 49, just verses 1 and 2 here really quick. Genesis 49, 1 and 2. The subtitle in your Bible is probably Jacob blesses his sons. It says this. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Jacob was doing something here. It's actually a time-honored tradition even now, thousands of years later. When the patriarch or the matriarch of the family, someone who's lived long, served the Lord for a long time, honored God with their life, and they've lived well, they gather their family because they know their time is near. And they have these final words for the people that they are close to. And if you have ever been around anything like this, then you know that it's special. It's not always easy. It's almost never easy because in the end, you know that someone you love is passing from this life, from this side of heaven to the other side of heaven. But it is something to be treasured. It's this moment that Jacob and his sons can treasure. But in the case of Jacob and his sons, the message is different, greatly different for each one. But they do. The 12 sons, they show him honor by coming to his bedside. He calls them to his bedside, and, and they come. From these sons will come, as you read through the Old Testament, they will come the 12 tribes of Israel, as well as the priesthood that will intercede between God and his people in the Old Testament before Jesus comes. We're not going to read Jacob's words to every son for the sake of time, but we're going to take some lessons from what he says uh, to some of them here. Right away, uh, verses 3 and 4, we see this lesson that endures time. Verses 3 and 4, chapter 49, it says this, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power, turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Right away, in those verses, we see this lesson that uh, extends over time, and that is our behavior has an effect on those that come after us. We can even forfeit blessing that at one time was given to us. You know, sometimes, I'm, if you've been in church very long, you may have heard this before. This was a favorite thing to say as a youth pastor. You know, if the Bible was a movie, it would be rated R. It's all sorts of crazy things in the Bible that happen. And my response to that always was like, well, you don't, everything doesn't have to be acted out. So it wouldn't necessarily be rated R, but that, you know, it's just being argumentative for the sake of it. It doesn't really matter. What the thought means is that the story of God's people in the Bible, it's not all sunshine and kittens. There's stuff that happens that is unbelievable. And you know why the reason that stuff happens? It's because there's human beings involved. It's people just like you and me. Like if this was us thousands of years ago, we would have done all this same stuff. We read in verse 4 of Reuben, it says this. It's this weird thing. You went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. It's one of those things, you know, you're reading through it. It's the Old Testament, so maybe your eyes are glazing over a little bit. And then you double back. You're like, what did it say? He did what on whose couch with what person? What Jacob is referencing here is that Reuben had slept with one of his concubines. You can find the scripture if you want to go read it in Genesis 35. 
We're not going to spend a ton of time on it, but it is worth noting what was going on here. In the time of Genesis, when this was written, when this was happening, concubine was a woman who lived with a man in home as if she was a wife. But she didn't have the status of a wife. She couldn't marry the man, but the relationship was exclusive for her. Later on in the Old Testament, as time went on, it would get worse and they would be used for exploitation and pleasure of, of evil men. But in Jacob's time, most of the time, they were primarily used if a wife turned out to be barren, if the wife couldn't have kids. If you've read Jacob's story, you know this is a big part of it. Now, in Jacob's family, a concubine likely would have had many of the same rights as a wife, not the legal status of being married, but many of the same rights. Would have been taken care of for their needs like a wife, just not the same status. And we do not know the reason behind why this occurred even among God's people then. There's nowhere in the Bible where it mentions that it's okay for a man to have more than one wife. And as time goes on, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see David and Solomon, two incredible men later in the Old Testament, both godly men who were mightily used by God. I think we'd all agree, right? David killed Goliath, first, second king of Israel. Solomon, wisest man who ever lived. They would have problem after problem at the end of their lives. And the reason had a lot to do with this type of behavior. When they stopped having just one wife and having many concubines for pleasure and no other reason, that's when their life got hard. In the culture that Jacob lived in, though, unmarried woman was completely dependent on her family. If she was not married, she had nothing. She could not work legitimately. She could not provide for herself, her family's needs in any way. So many times it was just women in need at least at this point in biblical history. What matters here is that it was not just anyone that Reuben had defiled, but someone that was a member of Jacob's house, someone that mattered to Jacob that he was taking care of. And we know that being the firstborn son in a family like Reuben was an incredible honor, and it brought with it certain privileges. But we read there, though Reuben was physically strong, he forfeited his rights with his behavior. Verse 4, I love the way that verse 4 describes it. It tells us that he was as untrustworthy as turbulent water. NLT actually says flood, which gives us a clear picture of how Reuben was viewed. I know most of you have uh, smartphones, and if you have a smartphone, you probably have a weather app on there, right? Now, we get these things. We've gotten them quite a bit this summer, actually, and there's one right now. We get these things called area flood advisories. Does anyone ever read the area flood advisory? I do because I'm a nerd, right? If it turns into a flood warning later today, that the language gets a little bit more serious, right? But if you ever read it, you know the crazy thing it always says in there? One of the things National Weather Service says always says, turn around, don't drown. And they say, two to three inches of water could carry your car away, which is probably true. I don't know. I've never seen it actually happen. I believe them. They're saying don't drive through water because even a little bit of flooding water is very dangerous. Yeah. Uh, Hurricanes, if there's a hurricane warning, a hurricane happening, uh, even the thought of a hurricane coming, man, everyone evacuates, right? A hurricane may come here. We are leaving. Because the damage from water is long-lasting. It happens quickly, and it's incredibly destructive. You ever had water damage in your house? Man, it is hard to take care of. But this is how Reuben was viewed because of his actions. He was dangerous. He was not trustworthy. He was not something you want to be anywhere close to because of the actions he had taken. Reuben's legacy and Reuben's inheritance paid a price for it. 
Imagine the pain in Reuben as he heard those words from his father. You know what, Reuben? You're no longer going to be first. That's what he was saying. Reuben, you're no longer going to be first. But the incredible thing, and I want you to know this, just kind of put a bookmark here. Don't check out. If you're here today and you feel like, man, I've made those kind of mistakes. I've done worse than that. Just stay with us because I believe God wants you to know that is not where you have to stay. And there's hope for you and there's hope for your family no matter what you have done. We're going to see it as we unpack this. Jacob, he moves on to speak to Simeon and to Levi. Now, Simeon and Levi, it's another story in the Old Testament. They had unnecessarily slaughtered this entire town of men as revenge for their sister being exploited. That's another interesting, not PG at all story you can find. If you want to go read it in Genesis 34 of how they managed to get the men weakened so they could go kill the entire town, it's kind of crazy. I'm not going to go into it today, but uh, just you should go read it yourself. <laughs> Jacob's anger, though, is recorded at them, recorded uh, here in Genesis. And he's afraid that the, the rash actions of his two sons are going to lead to retaliation and his entire family being killed. What we're getting at, friends, is that in the Old Testament, just like it is now, our actions have consequences. You might be thinking this morning, one of two things. You know what? How am I ever going to get down, get out from under what my family's passed down to me? I'm here. I am trying to live my life the right way. But how am I going to get out from under uh, what my parents were like? Or you might be thinking in this place, man, what have I done? My parents passed down an incredible legacy, and I've taken the whole thing and messed it up. I've lived in a way that I know does not please God. Well, friends, I'm so glad to tell you today the other part of it, and that is the compassion of God can operate even within the consequences of our actions. God's compassion can operate within you no matter what you've done. One of my favorite scriptures, if you've been here, if you come here for like four weeks, I pretty much can guarantee you're going to hear me quote it. It tells us that God is gracious and compassionate, right? Psalm 103, God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. You see, even though Reuben did lose his rights as a firstborn, his, his family was not forsaken. His descendants became part of another house, the house of Gad, one of the other sons, and they had a place in the kingdom, as for Simeon and Levi, uh, verse 7, it's just uh, that we just, well, we haven't read verse 7 yet here. Let's read verse 7 together. We skipped that one. Sorry about that. Uh, verses 5 through 7, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords, their weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join in their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them. In Israel. Verse 7 there said their families are scattered. And Simeon's family is eventually integrated, integrated into the tribe of Judah, who we'll talk about in a moment. The Levites, you might notice if you read through the Old Testament, they're never given a territory of their own. But also that probably sounds like a familiar name to you. Because they're given this incredible, this unique honor of becoming the priesthood of God's people. God needed a tribe to be the people who was, went between the people and God. And the Levites were those. And before we finish this thought about the consequences for our actions, I want you to see uh, what it is Jacob says to his son, Judah. If you've been here uh, throughout this, then you know we've talked about Judah a fair amount, especially the past few weeks. But verses 8 through 12, here's what Jacob says to Judah. Judah, your brothers will praise you. 
your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Some really interesting Old Testament language there. Even if it seems a little strange, what we're to understand is that Judah's line would be greatly blessed. And if you read forward, from Judah's family would come the dynasty of David and Solomon and eventually Jesus himself. If you go read Matthew chapter 1, you're going to see Judah in there. And there's this really interesting description of how, just how prosperous Judah's tribe was going to be. It says, uh, you know, where was it? Uh, verse 11, I believe. Uh, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. This would be like uh, if you decided to make a leash uh, made of hot dogs for your dog. And you just like tied him to the tree and we're like, that'll probably work. What would the dog do? Just eat the hot, my dogs especially. They would eat the hot dogs in three seconds and let themselves out. So what we're saying here is Judah was going to be so well off, he would use a vine to tether his donkey. Because it wouldn't matter if the donkey ate the vine and walked off. He was so well off. It's a little strange, though, because if you've been with us, we've been reading about the consequences for the actions of Reuben and Levi. But we've talked over the past several weeks about how Reuben was one of the ringleaders of selling Joseph into slavery in the first place. The whole slavery thing, that was Judah's idea. Judah was in favor of letting Joseph live, but in Genesis 37, 27, it's Reuben who's quoted. He has the idea, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. But Judah was also the one who in Genesis chapter 44, uh, Judah refused to return to his father Jacob without another brother. Remember, they had done this once without Joseph. They had been out. Jacob had sent Joseph out to find them, and, and they saw him coming, and that's when they said, here comes the dreamer, and they sold him to the slave traders. And they went home without their brother, and they told their father that he'd been eaten by wild animals. They concocted the story, and they had his cloak, that they got animal blood on, whole, whole thing. So they'd return to their father once without a brother. Much later on, they come to Egypt, and uh, Joseph tells them, you know what? You're going to be fine. Please go talk to your, go bring my father back. He doesn't know it's his father yet, but go bring him back, but you have to leave a brother here. And they'd done it one time with Joseph. And Judah and his brothers, they were presented with the opportunity once more to leave a brother behind and save themselves. But if you go back and read, it's Judah who says that they won't do it. Nowhere in there, as you read that, that passage, that account, does it say that Judah thinks he'll receive any benefit for this. In fact, what he does is he offers himself in place of his brother Benjamin. He says, we will not hurt our father this way again. He cannot lose his youngest son. Take me instead. And what this teaches us, friends, when, when we know how Judah had acted and how he turned his heart towards God and towards the right things and what Jacob said about him and what Judah's tribe would become, what it teaches us is that God always honors a heart that has turned toward him. That is true, friends. 
It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been. God always honors a heart that is turned toward him. Judah, at some point, we don't know when it was, he turned his heart towards honesty and turned his heart away from deception. He knew only that it was right. He didn't know how it would work out. He only knew that it was right. And his eventual reward is that uh, he will be the most powerful. He'll be the leader of the brothers, leader of the family. And I believe what God wants us to take out of this section, friends, what he wants you to take out of this is it is never too late to turn your heart toward God. Ever. Until your last dying breath, it is never too late to turn your heart towards God. Though they may affect us, friends, the sins of our past do not have to define us. Let that sink into you. They might affect you in physical, tangible ways, but they do not have to define you. Even if, if it seems like addiction and pain or, as in Judah's case, maybe deception, maybe those things have been passed down to you. In God's strength, we can learn from those things instead of become those things. If Reuben and Simeon and Levi, they showed us that, yes, there's consequences for our actions, then Judah shows us that God's blessing always finds a heart that turns towards him. Although God is the one that decides what those blessings look like. There's blessing in the midst of every situation when we turn to God, friends. Not only that, but as Judah proves, when we change the way we live, and the brothers here, they do that by honoring their father in his last moments. When we change the way we live, God honors it. We're going to save what Jacob has for Joseph uh, here. Uh, We're going to save it for the end today. We're not going to read Jacob's request to his sons word for word about where to be buried because it's similar to what we read a couple weeks ago. Jacob gives those instructions just once more. Hey, take me to Canaan. Don't bury me here. Because even though they'd been brought to safety in Egypt, Jacob knew it wasn't where he was supposed to stay. He wanted to be where he knew God was going to take his people. But it's really incredible that the honor we see that is given to Jacob, if you read through this, we don't have time to read the whole thing today. If you read through this, the honor uh, is interesting because we see a bunch of honor from Jacob's family. Of course, he's the patriarch of the family. But there's a whole bunch of people who honor Jacob who, on the surface, they have no reason to honor him. We're going to read part of it. Uh, read with me this morning, Genesis 50, uh, 1 through 11. This is after Jacob has died. It says this. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned him for 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, if I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, my father made me swear an oath, and he said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father, as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him the dignitaries of his court, and all the dignitaries of Egypt. Besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household, only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. 
That's why the pla- that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. This is really incredible at the end of the life of Jacob. This is a man, Jacob, who for a large part of his life, he struggled to even believe God's promise for him, let alone walking in any of it. Early in his life, as we've covered, he was the man who wrestled with God. But he lost his son Joseph, and he lost his way for a long time. But in the end, he was able to speak from God over his sons. And the Egyptians who owed Jacob nothing, they proceeded to treat him that they would treat an honored Egyptian. If you're interested in archaeology, history at all, if you ever see those deals on Sunday afternoon, the History Channel, Mysteries of the Egyptians, right? You know that they were known to have this meticulous, long process for preparing a body uh, for burial. They would build these elaborate tombs. That's what the pyramids are, these elaborate tombs. And they would bury their royalty, their important people, with all their most important stuff so they would have it in the afterlife. They didn't want them to be bored in the afterlife. So they prepare Jacob's body like they're used to preparing a body with all the care. But Jacob wants to be buried with his family rather than his belongings. He knows God, and he knows that he needs his stuff no longer. But the crazy thing in there, there is the Egyptians, the whole nation, they mourn Jacob for 70 days. Let's let that sink into you for a little bit. 70 days. The nation of Egypt mourns a foreigner for two and a half months. Not just a foreigner, a Hebrew. The worst type of foreigner to them. They mourn him for two and a half months. And this foreigner actually has done nothing for them. They send, it even says in there, that's what it means. They send a military escort on the trip to Canaan to bury Jacob's body. Verse 9 that we read, it said, chariots and horsemen also went with him. And it was a very large company. If you fast forward like 14 chapters to Exodus chapter 14, you're going to see chariots and horsemen again. Because chariots and horsemen from Egypt would chase God's people all the way to the Red Sea. But at this point, the chariots and horsemen, the best military might that Egypt has, is escorting Jacob's body to its final resting place. It's an incredible honor that is shown to Jacob. But the reason it's done clearly, at least in the case of the Egyptians, it's not because of who Jacob is. It's because he's Joseph's father. It doesn't have anything to do with Jacob. It has everything to do with the fact that he is Joseph's dad. And Joseph, Joseph holds great honor throughout Egypt. What is important to Joseph is important to the rest of Egypt. The reason we're going there, friends, I just want to reiterate something that we've said a few times. It's the last week of this series, uh, something that you really need to remember, I really need to remember. Even if you feel like you're living or working somewhere in which you feel completely out of place, when we live in a way that is honorable, when we honor God in what we do, God is fully capable of bringing us blessing we would not ever have anticipated. It does not matter what situation you are working or living in, God can bless you there. He can not only bring you honor personally, he can bring honor to your entire family. Those that come before you, those that come after you, those who live in your house right in this moment. Because of the kind of man Joseph had been throughout his time in Egypt, there was honor throughout his family. It's really an incredible story. After this amazing honor shown to Jacob, though, we see something that's familiar to anyone who has lived life on this earth. We see this insidious thing called guilt resurface almost immediately. Uh, Read with me. This is our last big chunk today. Genesis 50, 15 through 21. 
It says this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. We see something in the brothers, friend, and friends in this brief set of verses that I believe God wants us to know today. Uh, it's for somebody in this place. That says, guilt that is not confronted brings fear and anxiety. Of guilt in your life, it will bring you fear and anxiety. It's really interesting what the brothers said in verses 15 through 17, right? It said that they're bringing Joseph a message that they say is from their father. That we have no record at all that Jacob actually said it, wrote it down, or gave it to them. And if their brother's track record is any indication, it seems pretty likely that it actually did not happen. Right? If Jacob had said this, if he had thought it was necessary to say before he passed away, why would he have not just said it to Joseph himself or said it among all of them? This is one of those deals where the brothers probably came to Joseph and said, hey, dad said this. And he's like, sure he didn't. <laughs> yeah. I'm just that's sure that's exactly what they said. But I think Joseph's response in verse 17, it helps us know what was happening to the brothers and also within Joseph. Look what verse 17 says. It simply says, when their message came to him, Joseph wept. I believe that Joseph is broken. His heart is broken here because his brothers had never really believed that he'd forgiven them. And to Joseph, everything he had said previously had been true. He'd worked so hard over, we talked about it, it took him he had decades to work on this before he encountered his brothers again. He worked hard over many years to get to the point where he could respond in this way when his brothers suddenly walked out of the desert. But just as had happened to their father earlier in life, the past had paralyzed the brothers' ability to accept God's goodness. They were so focused on their past, they could not accept the good thing that God was doing. They could not understand, they simply could not understand that their brother Joseph could actually forgive them. They're so focused on what they have done. They couldn't see that Joseph was just gratefully seeing his family be made whole before his eyes. Nothing more than that. That's what Joseph wanted. And for his part, I guess Joseph does have one final chance to repay his brothers. If he really is playing a decades-long game to get back at his brothers, he could have done it here. But he ends it quickly with that one question in verse 19. Am I in the place of God? You see, Joseph, he had no desire to be their judge or to be their jury. And what Joseph's life proved to us over and over again is, uh, is that his hope was as ours should be. Joseph's hope was simply to be an instrument of God. And you know what is one of the, the most difficult things to do in this life? I'm sure you've had to do it. I've had to do it. It is to be kind to someone who is just not getting it. You know, Joseph had been telling these guys for years, and he's staring at 11 brothers who just don't get it. 
And he's probably standing there trying not to roll his eyes. You guys serious? We're back at this again. What do I have to do to prove to you? How many times do I have to say it to you? I brought you here. I gave you the best land. What else do I have to do? Maybe he rolled his eyes. Maybe he didn't. I don't know. I probably would have in their, in their shoes, his shoes. But verse 21 says this. I love it. He reassured them and spoke kindly to them. After all that, he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. I would just want to encourage you so strongly, friends, as we get to the conclusion of this series. If you have guilt in your life for past actions, if you're like the brothers, you have done something that you know that you know is wrong, I encourage you so much, just go seek forgiveness from God first. Seek forgiveness from your God. He's faithful to forgive. And know that when you seek forgiveness from God, he grants it as soon as we ask. He doesn't wait a moment. He doesn't make you prove yourself. He doesn't make you accomplish a list of things. When we ask forgiveness from God, he grants it as soon as we ask. And the second thing I would encourage you to, to do, if you have guilt in your life, I would encourage you to make it right with any person you need to speak with. Go find them. If you can take them to lunch or take them to coffee, go find them. If they're far away, call them on the phone or send them a message or whatever. It might just take once or twice to make it right on this earth with a person. And we're humans, right? Sometimes someone will come apologize to me and I'll be like, okay, uh, that's, this is like time six or seven, so I'm a little cautious. It might take once or twice to make it right on earth with a human, but it may take many nights of talking to God to banish it from the corners of our mind because only we know what's going on in our hearts. It might take you months or years of speaking with God about it. But what the brothers hadn't learned and what we have to learn is that it is worth the daily struggle to subdue guilt in your life. Because what guilt does is it takes our mind places that we wish it would not go. When we feel guilty, it takes our mind places that are awful. Guilt is a weapon that the enemy uses to keep us captive. One of the biggest weapons of the enemy, friends, is to make you feel guilty about a sin you've already asked forgiveness for. Because what does the Bible say? When God forgives us, he throws it away into the sea of forgetfulness. Like Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west. It's a weapon the enemy uses to keep us captive. When Jesus has already set us free from all manner of sin and shame. And what guilt does is it keeps us from experiencing the incredible plans that God has for us. And this is what's happening to the brothers here. They are held captive uh, by what's happened to them. These final two chapters of Genesis, we see honor. We see guilt on the part of the brothers. It hasn't been dealt with. Finally, as Genesis closes, we see in the person of Joseph this clear picture of honesty. Joseph, in his life, I think we have this on the screen, he has managed to be honest with himself about his motivations and honest with others in his interactions. He's been able to be honest with himself and be honest with others. It's a very difficult thing to do. As we leave Joseph's story, I believe God would just have us remember these three, three enduring lessons about the life of Joseph. We've touched on all of these in some way, shape, or form as we've gone through this. And they're sprinkled throughout this book I talked about at the beginning that I read about Joseph by Charles Swindoll. Kind of referenced it throughout this series. The first lesson we see from Joseph is simply that God works all things together, period. God works all things together. Look at that last part of what Joseph says to his brothers here when they come to him 
with this, this story that's probably made up about Jacob's message. Uh, um, Genesis 50, 19 through 21. It's just so beautiful. I want to read it again. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Even if he did not always see it or or see it easily at first, Joseph saw clearly God's purpose in all that had happened to him. Joseph has seen this situation through long enough that he can see God's obvious hand. You know, one of those deals, we've talked about hindsight during this few months, right, where you get through a thing and you can see where God was guiding you. And that's what Joseph sees here. Joseph sees that there was purpose to the loneliness of becoming a slave. There was purpose to him hearing his brother Judah say, oh, yeah, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. He could see God's obvious hand in the pain of false accusation when Pharaoh's wife accused him of uh, trying to rape her. He could see God's purpose in the shock of the unexpected promotion he received when he got out of prison and he interpreted Pharaoh's dream and he was elevated to second in command of the whole nation. And I believe God would have us see a promise from him today, friends. And that is that if we persevere enough to see whatever situation that we are in the middle of, and I don't know what your situation is, but we're all in one. If we persevere enough to see the situation through, then we're going to see just how good God is and how good he has always been. Romans 8, 28 is a scripture we love, and it's so true. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Today, friends, if you've accepted Jesus as Savior, you are called according to his purpose. You may not see the whole purpose right now. You might not be zoomed out enough to see it, but you're called according to his purpose. But Joseph, we saw that the promise was a little earlier. We saw the promise a little earlier in what Jacob's prophecy about him beautifully says. Rewind just a little bit. Uh, Genesis 49, 22 through 26. This is what Jacob says to Joseph. Joseph comes to his bedside. Joseph is a fruitful vine. A fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. And bitter, with bitterness, archers attacked him. That's the brothers. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility. But his bow remained steady. His strong arm stayed limber. Because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you. of the Almighty who blesses you, with blessings of the skies above, blessings of the deep springs below, blessings of the breast and the womb. Your Father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains and the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. You want to know what the purpose of Joseph's life was. Jacob just spelled it out for him right there. Second key we see is that to Joseph's life is that the key to Joseph's life was forgiveness. The key to Joseph's life was forgiveness. Not, the, not momentary like, oh man, you shoved me, you said sorry, and now we're good. Not momentary forgiveness, but the, the kind of forgiveness that some of you are familiar with. Maybe you're still working on it. The kind that, the kind that takes daily time with God to find. 
kind when you wake up and you're okay, oh Lord, I forgive that person. And the next day you wake up and, and there it is again in your heart and you have to say, okay, Lord, I forgive that person. This is why Joseph, even after they'd buried Jacob, he was able to reassure, speak with kindness towards his brothers. It's forgiveness, friends. Forgiveness frees us from chains that the enemy would love to keep us in as far as our relationships on this earth. And forgiveness, what it does is it enables us to become sons and daughters of God. When you have forgiveness in your life, it enables you to become a son or daughter of God. Mark eleven twenty five 25 tells us this. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. This does not mean that we allow people to hurt us again if they have, but we forgive them and we give them over to God. We forgive and we say, God, you do what you're going to do. Finally, in the end, Joseph, he was right with man and he was right with God. And because he was right with man and right with God, if you keep reading, you see how the end of his life played out. He saw the third generation of his son, Ephraim's children. Three generations. He saw the second generation of his son, Manasseh's children. And remember what Jacob wanted Joseph to know at the end of his life. If you look back a couple chapters, all Jacob wanted to tell Joseph was, son, look how good God has been. Joseph says similar things to his family who are still living. Verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had said, son, look how good God has been. And Joseph saying to his brothers, you guys, look how good God has been. And he ends his life by telling his family, God is going to guide you and turn you into a great nation. You see, Joseph was someone who worked at being right with God and right with man. We're going to pray and end our service here in a minute, but I just want to look you in the eyes and tell you, friends, my encouragement to you as we pray, we head out on this Labor Day weekend, it would be this, friends. If you do one thing, make yourself right with God. If you didn't when we took communion earlier, make yourself right with God. And if you need to, go from this place intent to make yourself right with man. Make yourself right with God. And if there's someone you make yourself right with, go do it. Forgive others, friends, and allow uh, God to forgive you. Remember, God forgives you as soon as you ask. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes this morning. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it's powerful. And I thank you for your purpose that was in the story of Joseph. Thank you for your purpose in our church. Thank you for your purpose in each one of our lives. Lord, I know that you have spoken to me as I've studied this, and I know you've spoken to your people far and wide, and I just ask that uh, we would take what we have learned uh, and we would hide it deep within our hearts. Lord, I pray that every person that's in this place, uh, they would go from here right with you. If there's people in this place that don't know you, they would whisper a prayer in this moment and just say, God, I accept you, accept your forgiveness. Jesus, would you forgive me and would you live inside my heart? Lord, I pray uh, for those that may be struggling in this place with bitterness, frustration, unforgiveness from things that happened months or years or decades ago. Lord, I pray that in this moment you would give them the strength to forgive, give them the strength to have that conversation they have been dreading. And Lord, I pray that every person that's in this place would uh, walk out of here free of guilt. Uh, Lord, that they would be right with you. That every heart in this place would know you. 
Lord, I pray your blessing over every family represented here. Would you go with us with your grace and your mercy? Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. 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 Friends, thanks for coming to church today on Labor Day weekend. So grateful to have you. I want to remind you, church on Wednesday night, 7 p.m., we have worship and Bible study in here, youth group for teenagers, uh, kids ministry for kids. By the way, there's food from 7 to 7.15, so 7 o'clock here. We will be here, and uh, we'd love to have you on Wednesday night. If I have not met you yet, I'd love to shake your hand on your way out. Thanks for coming. Have an amazing Labor Day weekend. Stay out of trouble on Monday. Don't want to have to come visit any of you. You know. Thanks for coming. We'll see you soon. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more, you can visit us at engageboise.com. Have an amazing day.